What do Isabel Allende, Bill Bryson, Arthur Fromer, Jan Morris, Paul Theroux, Francis Mays, and even me all have in common? We've all been interviewed by Michael Shapiro for his book, A Sense of Place. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Traveling is a joy. But just what's it like to write about it for a living? I've named a few of the 18 travel writers Michael Shapiro interviewed in his latest project. Coming up, we'll get to the bottom of what makes the Robert Louis Stevensons of our generation such good travel writers. People love to read about travel, and they love to be transported by these authors to places that they may never be able to go. We're getting to know the best-selling travel writers in America, what inspires them, how they work, and their special take on the art and adventure of travel. It's next on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also take some time to answer your calls and emails and maybe hear from a few budding Mark Twains as well. We'll get started in just a moment. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. From Homer to Chaucer, to Mark Twain to Bill Bryson, writers love to travel and travelers love to write. What's the secret of writing in a captivating way about the exotic corners of our world? Michael Shapiro quizzed 18 of our generation's best travel writers to discover their keys to success. Today, we'll enjoy a few intellectual packing tips from the Robert Louis Stevensons of our age and learn how they captured a sense of place. And you're invited to come along. Let's start today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves with your calls, 877-333-RICK. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. we got Chuck in Elm Grove, Wisconsin. Hi, Chuck. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. What are you thinking about? I got back this summer in August with a group of eight of us. Spent two weeks in, in south of France on the Canal du Midi and then a number of days in Paris. The question I had is dealing with tipping uh, in general. I tip within, you know, for the most part, 10 to 15 percent. And throughout the entire two-week time period, as I tip that much, I would get people very happy that I tip that much, um, which made me wonder whether I was doing it too much. And finally, even in Paris, uh, at a nice restaurant, to the south of uh, Sacré-Cœur, uh, waitress said that I tipped way too much. She well, tried to talk me out of it. <laughs> ah, that's interesting. Well, I would love to be able to get a definitive answer on what do you tip, when, and where throughout uh, you know people's travels. But it's a very confusing issue because different people have different personal philosophies about it. And there's the confusing thing of service versus tips. Uh, if service is included, a lot of people think that means the waiter's going to get his or her tip. But service included, sometimes they'll add 10, 15% to the bill. That means the restaurant makes 15% extra. It doesn't mean the, the wait staff gets that money uh, right. in a lot of cases. On the other hand, uh, waiters and waitresses in Europe are paid a living wage and they don't need to rely on tips like they do here in the United States. Uh, you know, you could be a good tipper in the United States and you could go on those same standards in Europe and kind of make a fool out of yourself by paying too much and mess up the what the expectations are of Americans that travel uh, in, in your footprints. Um, I would not ask people in the restaurant business what's an appropriate tip. I would ask uh, people that you meet who, who, who don't have a vested interest in the answer uh, what they tip when they go out. And when you do that in your travels, you'll find that generally people tip uh, overseas less than what they do in the United States, but it varies a lot from country to country. People can just leave the small coins, they can round it up, uh, or they can tip nothing at all, and they feel just fine about that. Certainly when you, get your, when you order your food at a bar, and, uh, you, know, you wouldn't be tipping. Uh, remember, in uh, many countries, especially Germany, you don't leave coins on the table. That's bad style. You tell the waiter or waitress how much money you want them to keep. So let's say the bill is 16 euros, and you give them a 20-euro note. You could say, Achtzehn which means 18, and that would be the local way to do that. Then the waiter would just give you back two euros, and they wouldn't have the crudeness of waiting to pick up the money on the table that you left. I see. But it varies from country to country. I can't give you a simple answer on that. I'm not a big tipper in Europe uh, because I I like the straightforwardness if they pay their waiters well, and that's good enough. But I always ask locally uh, from people who aren't involved in that business what how they do it. And I remember there are cases when somebody has to do a service that they're not paid for, in which case you'd obviously want to tip them. 
On the other hand, I don't leave extra money in my hotel room so I can get more towels than everybody else. Uh, Europe is much more egalitarian, and everybody manages together, and I kind of like that. Right. All right? Good. Thank you very much. Did you have a good time when you were in France? Excellent. Excellent. People treated you okay? It It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I did not have any bad situations at all. Well, because you were tipping fifteen percent, yeah. No. <laughs> Even, <laughs> Even without, without that. that, Even without that. All it's, right, it's a great time. Well, thanks for your call. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. Bye, Cheryl in Illinois. Thank you for your call. Oh, thank you. Last year, I took my daughter, who's sixteen, and we went to Paris, and Munich, Venice, and we did it all on our own. But I loved your books. They were a wonderful travel guide. Next year, I would like to do one of your trips, so I don't have to spend a month planning everything. Um, and I'm interested in going to Poland, but I'd also like to go to Russia, and I don't find Russia on any of your tours. Would you think it's safe for two women to go off and and do the addition to Russia? Well, Russia is challenging, and um, I don't want to say it's not safe, but it's a little more demanding than a lot of uh, my readers would feel comfortable. That's why I have not done any TV shows or guidebooks or tours to Russia. Is just a little premature. Uh, okay. Having having said that, uh, aggressive travelers who really want to see Russia, um, they do their studying and they exercise common sense and they spend the necessary money and they have a great time there. I have really enjoyed my travels there, but it's just um, it's a little rough edged and it's a little frankly it's a little scary with these uh, no neck uh, mafia types uh, hanging out in front of the hotels and not regulations on the taxis and it's just you feel like you need a security crew to to keep you in one piece as you wander around the town. Having said that, the Baltic states, uh, uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, these are wonderful destinations for people who have an appetite for that part of Europe. And uh, they're far more comfortable, I think, than St. Petersburg and Moscow. So that would be an interesting way to to cobble together and experience sort of in Eastern Europe. You could do Krakow, Warsaw, and the Baltic capitals. Okay. I wrote a guidebook on the the most accessible five cities of the former Soviet Union. Um, That would be... um, Tallinn, uh, Riga, uh, Vilnius, St. Petersburg, and Moscow. And it was a good little guidebook. Uh, and we've still got it on our website for free for people who want to download it, but I haven't updated it for years. But there's just no market. And, uh, okay. you know, I've, I've got to I've got to pay my bills and uh, run a business here. And it's just a good way to starve is to write a guidebook to, to Russia these days. So I I'm going to take your advice, mm-hmm. and I'm staying out of Russia. <laughs> well, I, I, I hate to say that. I'm, I'm sure there would be people who differ with me, but it's just... For my from for what how I assess my readers, um, you know I, th- I think they're more comfortable in Poland. They'd be more comfortable in Czech Republic, former Yugoslavia, and the Baltic capitals. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And what month is best to go? Um, boy, in Eastern Europe, it's hot and muggy in the middle of the summer. I really like uh, late spring and early fall. May okay. May September. I, I would vote for that. Thank you so okay. much. You do a great job. Well, thanks, Cheryl. Thanks a lot for your call, and uh, good luck in your travels. Thank you. Bye bye. Hey, we got Bob on the line from Grand Junction, Colorado. Hi, Bob. Hey, Rick. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. What are you thinking about? Well, I guess uh, the question I'd have for you, Rick, is uh, what uh, what do you recommend for people to um, to journal their trip? Uh, we were in Spain a few years ago, and it was about a three week trip, and uh, nobody was writing anything down, and uh, so. Uh, we were actually at the Casa Mila in uh, in Barcelona, and I stopped and got a little book and started kind of recreating the trip, right. and it, and then just kept it up through the end. And it's just great reading now, several years later. What do you recommend? What do you recommend for picture taking? Uh, that kind of thing. Well, you know, one thing I recommend, bottom line, Bob, is to keep a journal. It's the most precious souvenir I've had from any of my trips is uh, the journal, and I think you need to have a discipline to take a a little time each day and uh, enjoy writing up your experiences while you're there. It's very tough to uh, recreate it once you get home. Uh, Get away from the log kind of thing. We don't really need to know that you got up at this time and then you got on the bus and then you you went to the bank and you changed some money. Think about things that just... uh, um, struck you as 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 different and challenging and and um, introspective things and so on. I find as a travel writer, it is much much better to write right on the spot. I mean, when I'm right there on the on the bed in Cairo, I can and I'm surrounded by these flies, these pesky flies, and and I realize when they're rubbing their little front hands together, they're easier to squish because they're distracted. You know, and I look out the window and the dust is raising from all the people that have gathered together as the lanterns cut through the raising dust and I can hear the squawky music from the village. Uh, you know, that Im- image, that, that intimate kind of uh, description when you're right there makes all the difference. Um, just uh, 
you know, what are you going to write the journal in? Well, I really like the uh, very simple uh, Moleskine books. They're very popular in Europe. They're just uh, sold in bookstores all over the place. You can get them here. But whatever, you just get an empty book of some sort. Get a book that's not a spiral notebook because you don't want a, you want a perfect bound book that's going to go in your bookshelf when you get home if you put any any energy into it. One thing that I've found is is really a good idea if you're traveling with a group, make a communal journal. That's what we do on our tours in a lot of times is we just have one book and then we will let every person take turns writing up each day. So you don't have to be burdened with that every day. If it's a family of four, every fourth day, every person does one day's writing. That's a fun sort of uh, family or community sort of exercise. It's a nice souvenir for each other, and uh, it cuts the workload down dramatically. You do less writing, and you do a better job. Something else that um, I think is uh, a very uh, good way to do a journal is to collect postcards and write in the back of those postcards. My first trip when I was a kid, that's the journal I kept, was I bought postcards as I went on the back of each one. I um, wrote down what was going on, and I collected that. I had them, uh, like, numbered. And uh, that was a great coverage of the trip with a wonderful photographic souvenir also. My son is a much more um, computerized generation. He just got back from his first trip, and he made a blog. And it's very easy to make a blog. And you could actually check out my son's blog at, at ricksteves.com. And, uh, and that's a wonderful way to share your trip with loved ones back home. And uh, uh, you can bet Andy's mom and dad were tuning in every every day to look for what blog entry Andy had made, and he didn't have to write postcards or even call home to let us all know what he was up to. So he just goes and finds a web cafe some night and just uh, writes down the experiences? That's right, and that's um, that's the headache of that. You just got to go to a, a cyber cafe, but yeah, I think it's um, it, they're readily uh, available around Europe these days, and it'll cost you a few bucks, but it does give you a chance to showcase your trip, and it's easy to upload photographs. Andy uploaded photographs, too. So there's these um, blogs out there that are kind of ready-made for anybody who's reasonably adept at the computer, and that worked very well for Andy. Something I've enjoyed doing on the flight home to help an eight-hour, nine-hour flight back across the Atlantic go by is I chart out a fresco with my travel partner, and we list all the most exciting or interesting or fun memories of the trip in chronological order, and then we take t- we make two frescoes, and we, we make a pattern with all of these little frames, and it becomes a, if there's 25 memories that we want to capture, we have uh, a series of comic book kind of uh, um, stills that uh, we each take turns sketching, and uh, we each write half of the frames, and each one is our own little crude drawing of that, and it is a fun kind of uh, very, very simple um, uh, visual memory of the trip, and it becomes, a, uh, I think, suitable for framing goofy little memory of you and your travel partner's exciting adventure in Europe. Lots of ways to to, uh, to journal your trip there. Okay, great. Good luck on your trip. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your call. Pleasure talking to you, Rick. You too. From the age of Chaucer to the time of Mark Twain, until today, travel writers make the world accessible and meaningful to the masses. I'd say travel writer Michael Shapiro knows more about America's greatest travel writers than anyone else. And he's compiled a book of interviews featuring what he considers the top 18. Michael did me the honor of including me in his delightful book, A Sense of Place. Now, turnabout's fair play. It's my turn to interview him to discover what inspired the Robert Louis Stevensons of our generation and how they might inspire us to discover A Sense of Place. It's just ahead as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. And that's the Italian for I am Cecilia Bottai, I make fine wines in Italy and we are traveling with Rick Steves. Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. Grazie. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. In the next segment, we've got with us Michael Shapiro, who wrote a book called A Sense of Place, which is a wonderful, wonderful collection of essays, interviews of, you could say, the 18 leading travel writers on the planet. I don't know. Um, Michael, is that true? Are these the 18 best travel writers around, or how did you choose these guys? Well, I chose the people who I thought were not just the most influential and the most important travel writers of our time, but the most enjoyable to read. And so it's a, it's a highly personal list, and I would say it would be my top 18, and certainly some of the names on there would be on most people's lists, I would think. People like Bill Bryson and Francis Mays and Paul Theroux and Peter Matheson, and, and there are a couple lesser-known writers, but I think equally deserving as well. Now tell me honestly, did you get your top 18? I did, if you can believe it. All 18 consented, and I had a bit of a backup list, too, but I never needed to go to the backup list because I had 18, 18 writers on the list. 18 and for 18. Yeah, and it wasn't easy. Eventually... Because these guys are characters. They're like, um, aren't they like eccentric people and busy and flying all over the place? And well, they're all busy, and... no question, and, and a lot of them are, are traveling quite often. But, uh, not, yeah, I mean, some are certainly eccentric, but they... They just made the time, and I think what happened was they realized I was familiar with their work by the letters I wrote them, and others I teach with at an annual Travel Writers Conference, and it just all worked out. Paul Theroux and Peter Matheson were the ones who took the longest to get to agree, but eventually they came around too. And it's a fair amount of time that these writers need to dedicate to you, and you had nothing to offer them other than the love of art, basically. Do you want to share your uh, your uh, craft with uh, other uh, prospective travel writers or people who love to travel? Well, that's true, but uh, I think many of them really enjoy talking about the craft, and mm-hmm. and they saw this as a way to be in a collection of writers that wasn't really recognized before. I think travel writing, in a way, has been looked down on as a sort of inferior genre, but people love to read about travel, and they love to be transported by these authors to places that they may never be able to go, places like Antarctica, or they just really enjoy reading about places they will go because it adds so much to their appreciation of the place when they get there. So, Michael, you arguably know more or more about these uh, greatest 18 travel writers than anyone on Earth. You picked their brains. Well, it was, a, it was a dream project. It really was, because I got to go and interview so many of my literary idols. I went to Wales to interview the great writer Jan Morris, and I went to Oxford in England as well for Redmond O'Hanlon. And it was just such a, such a glorious journey, and the fact that I was not just meeting these people, but sitting down with them with the purpose of talking about the craft of writing and talking about what they learned on their travels and just really getting so much insight into what motivated these people and what what keeps them at the top of their craft. Now tell me, just go through these names, because I have to admit, I... I, uh... I don't read a lot of travel books, and uh, a lot of these people I have not read. Um, can you quickly just give a thumbnail, a sketch of, of what these people mean to you? I'm talking really just five or six words for each name, but, but go through the list here and uh, tell us who these people are. Well, sure. Jan Morris is maybe the dean of travel writers, and Jan lives in Wales and started out as a news reporter in London and then traveled the world starting shortly after World War II and has chronicled many of the great political and social movements of the 20th century, but always has a flair for writing about travel as well. And then there's Peter Matheson, another one of the older writers I interviewed, who is most well-known for The Snow Leopard, which he wrote in the 70s, which was a very spiritual journey into the Himalayas. And then there are others, such as Bill Bryson, most people are probably familiar with. He's the great humorist who was born in Iowa, moved to England for a while, and then came back to the States for a while and married to, and is married to an English woman. And Frances Mays, of course, writes the books about Tuscany and, 
and now is well known ever since that movie came out a couple years ago about her home in Tuscany. And uh, her home is called Brahma Sole, which in Italian means yearning for the sun. And so there were so many. I mean, Paul Theroux is another one who is kind of reclusive, but eventually consented to the interview. And he writes often about rail journeys in India or in China. And he recently came out with a book about traveling overland through Africa for several months and some of the hardships he faced there. And and he was a Peace Corps uh, volunteer in Africa in the 60s. So that book is about the changes he's seen in Africa since the 60s, which unfortunately have not all been for the better. Did you have to, I suppose just out of respect to your um, subjects, you needed to read their work before you would do the interview. Absolutely. And it wasn't just out of respect. It was it was something I enjoyed doing, and and I had read many of these books before, but I went back and reread some of them and read ones that I hadn't yet read, and it was it was a lot of work, but it was the kind of work that was very inspiring and, and very illuminating. And you did not know most of these people before the interview? No, I had met a couple of them teaching at uh, annual travel writers' conference at Book Passage, right. which is a bookstore in in the San Francisco area. So I had met a couple of people, Jan Morris and Tim Cahill. And so Tim and I were friends in a way, and I had met Pico Iyer, who's the wonderful... Uh, he lives in Japan now, but he's. it's kind of hard to categorize Pico because his parents were born in India, so he has Indian blood, but he was born in England, and when he was young, moved to California, and now lives in, in Japan. So he's had a very global... Uh, career. And, uh, Michael, you said you brought Pico Iyer a bootleg uh, CD of a Grateful Dead concert. It Just... was actually a Van Morrison concert. Oh, Van Morrison, that was it, okay. That's right, and I knew that. He's, he's, he enjoys the dead, too, so uh, that's something we both share. But you, you realized that he, he would like a Van Morrison CD, and he had something special. Was that a, that's probably a nice way to um, bring flowers or something, you know? For In a way, I mean, I tried to bring a small gift to each travel writer, and Pico had written about his love of Van Morrison in one of his books, and I had remembered that. So uh, I had a bootleg from a, a 91 show that Van Morrison did in Europe, and he was actually really animated and gave a great show, which is something he doesn't always All do. Right, yeah. Now, so, i got to say, I, I'm, I'm personally honored because I made the cut. I think um, of these 18 people, there's two guidebook writers, Arthur Fromer and Rick Steves. That's right. And, uh, Michael, you just were, I just, I learned a lot about myself from your interview, I'll tell you that. And, uh, uh, well, just that's to, a nice compliment. Thank just you. To, just to plug your book, if anybody wants to know a lot about me, they can buy A Sense of Place by Michael Shapiro, the man we're talking to. Um, when I was reading the book, it occurred to me that these guys, a lot of them, have a, a cross-cultural mix. Um, you got Bill Bryson. He was uh, sort of English and American. you got Pico Iyer. He's uh, Indian blood. He's uh, raised in England, I guess, so he has that traditional stuff of, from England. And then he's got this American hopefulness. Uh, you got Jan Morris, who uh, was a man and now is a woman. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, and it's like, uh, it's, it, rem- it reminded me of the painter, El Greco, uh, raised in, in Greece, trained in Venice, and did all his work in Spain. And this gives you this wonderful kind of mix. Uh, is that just coincidence, or talk a little bit about that? Well, no, it's not really coincidence. It was it was a conscious effort to get a lot of points of view into the book. And and I think it's, it's not a coincidence that these are the kinds of people who are travel writers, because they are insatiably curious about the world. And they want to explore the world and explore themselves. And you're right about Jan Morris. Jan started life as James Morris and was quite an accomplished writer. And in the late 60s, early 70s, went through the process of gender change and became a woman. And Pico, as we said, yeah, he's he's an amazing writer, I think, in part because he travels the world, the world with a sort of beginner's mind. He's open to everything, and he travels without lugging a lot of judgments along with him, and writes often about the places where cultures merge or interact. For example, he'll go see a baseball game in Japan, and he'll he'll talk about how when a player meets an umpire, that player bows to the umpire, which is pretty different from the way the American players treat the umpires here with kicking dirt and shouting in their faces. Now, and, isn't that interesting? So Pico Iyer, he was a newcomer to Japanese culture, but he looked at baseball, which he understands intimately, right. and he saw it in a Japanese context and therefore was able to be, in a sense, uh, a keen observer of the fine points of Japanese culture. Exactly, and it, that was his window into Japanese culture. And he has said that you know, hundreds of people before him have written beautifully about Japanese culture, and he was looking for 
an angle that somebody else hadn't taken. So that that was it to see how, excuse me, how American culture was was interacting with the Japanese culture. Because his his work was not going to shine because he was a scholar about Japan. It was going to shine because he had this angle, this special take on it. You know, that's interesting because I remember when I was playing backgammon with uh, friends in Turkey, it just occurred to me how they play their backgammon reflects on the whole uh, sort of society in general. In in Turkey, the winner goes first. And in our culture, we let the loser go first. Oh, that remember? is interesting, yeah. yeah. In Turkey, the winner goes first in backgammon. Now, um, Pico Iyer, you mentioned him. He's a good example of, uh, you said he approaches things like a beginner. And this is one of the issues I've got or questions I've got about a great travel writer. Pico Iyer, he wrote a classic book, a Video Night, uh, what right. was it, Video Nights in Kathmandu? Exactly, Video Night in Kathmandu. And yeah. uh, apparently he spent two weeks each in 10 different countries where he didn't speak the language and he had never been to those countries before. Right. It was He went to 10 different Asian countries, spent a couple of weeks in each country, and really didn't attempt to live in any of these places. He wanted to get a more snapshot view, but even though he was only there for a couple of weeks, he, he will write so beautifully about these cultures. For example, he went to Thailand and... He, he took a look at something that hasn't been written about that much or hadn't been during the 80s, which was how American and Western men were interacting with the Asian women and shattered some of the stereotypes about what was going on there. And so it just, it's, a, it's a novel take, and I think that's what a lot of these writers do is they take something that hasn't really been looked at and they say, oh, you know, let's take a look at this and let's look at it in new ways. That's encouraging and hopeful for aspiring travel writers, I think. I think so, because I think there's always a new story out there. I think there's always a way to look at something that hasn't been looked at before. And I think one thing that Tim Cahill said in the book, and he, he has a lot of advice for writers uh, in his chapter, is that do something in a foreign country that you might do at home. For example, if you're a firefighter, go to the local firehouse and hang out with the firefighters and see what what kind of you know, how they pass the time in the firehouse or how they approach their job. If you're a farmer, go go to a farm in, in whatever country you choose to visit and see how their farming methods uh, differ from yours. Offer to help out. And, and then you're really involved in the culture instead of being a bystander. I'm talking with Michael Shapiro, who wrote a book called A Sense of Place. And um, it's uh, interviews with 18 of the greatest living travel writers. Michael, the book is called A Sense of Place, and uh, it, it's clear when you write these, make these interviews, that the home of, of each of these places is generally important to them. Uh, but uh, on, on the other hand, some people, Pico Iyer's home burned down, and, and he's sort of into a home that's uh, inside of himself, wherever, wherever he goes. Uh, right. You mentioned Peter Matheson. It's very important that everything's in the right place. Uh, you mentioned how, how tightly connected Jan Morris was to her home in Wales. Uh, talk a little bit about that, please. Sure. Well, the way the book started out wasn't really about place at all. It was a book that was designed to be an instructional book for aspiring travel writers. And all I wanted to do initially was go talk to the world's leading travel writers about the craft of writing. But what happened was 9-11 hit as this book was being planned. And I thought, these writers, these writers have traveled the world and know about place more intimately than almost any other people in any other profession. And I thought, we have a lot to learn from this group of people, the world's top travel writers. And then I thought, well, if I'm really going to do this book right, I need to go and visit them where they live and talk about place, and not just the places they visited, but the places they've chosen to call home after all their global travels. So I started asking people, I said, may I come visit you? And whether it was Jan Morris in Wales or Bill Bryson in New Hampshire at the time or Francis Mays in Tuscany, I really got a sense of who this person was, either by the places they've been calling home for their whole life, such as Jan Morris in Wales, or people's adopted homes, such as Francis Mays in Tuscany. And, and you know how it was. I mean, you've been in your area for your life, I mean, almost your whole life. And when we did our interview, you pointed out the window and said, look, that's where I went to junior high school. I mean... That adds so much to an interview when somebody says, this is my place and this is why. When Peter Matheson says, you know, I've, I've been a sailor in these waters off of Long Island and I used to be a commercial fisherman and that's how I supported my family when I was starting out. 
that that adds so much texture and so much understanding to the person, and I felt it really enriched the book. And these are people who travel. They're they're um, almost nomadic people, but they are also rooted people, it sounds like. Right. Well, several of them were nomadic for much of their lives. For example, Simon Winchester, who, like several of these writers, is also known for his non-travel work. He's the author of The Professor and the Madman, which was a big bestseller about the Oxford English Dictionary. But Simon traveled the world incessantly for three decades. He was the Asia Bureau Chief for Condé Nast Traveler and finally settled on a farm in uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And when I interviewed him, he was the first interview I did. When I interviewed him, he said, look out that window. You see that winter rye coming up? I planted that, and I'm going to be here to harvest it. And I couldn't have told you that during any other year in my life for the past 30 years. So I think a lot of these writers are rooted, and they travel to get material for their books, but but they're not incessantly traveling, with a couple of exceptions. As you mentioned, Pico Iyer travels anywhere from five to nine months of the year and then spends a few months in Japan and maybe a couple of months in California at his family's home. We'll continue our conversation with Michael Shapiro in a few minutes. Michael is the author of a remarkable series of interviews with the top travel writers of our generation, which he assembled in his book, A Sense of Place. By talking with Michael Shapiro, we travel a bit with Bill Bryson, Paul Theroux, Arthur Fromer, and Francis Mays. Coming up as we continue on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're visiting with Michael Shapiro, who interviewed our generation's top travel writers for his book, A Sense of Place. Okay, now, I, reading your book, Michael, you are a great writer yourself. And, well, that's, that's uh, very kind of you, Rick. I, I, I got to say, I read my interview first, and I, I was just blown away how well you did. And then I read a couple other interviews, and I, I really developed a... I, I wanted to be a good chapter in your book just because I enjoyed my time with you. And, uh, yeah. boy, I almost developed an inferiority complex uh, compared to all these other fascinating, deep, philosophical people. You must have learned so much. What a treat for you to have this journey yourself, to talk to these 18 great travel writers. And I want to go through just a couple of these pretty quickly because we don't have a, a lot of time left. I want to just get your take in, in general terms when I ask you this, if any of these writers strike you about things you learn from them in these regards. For instance... Pico Iyer seems to crave a monastic kind of life, a meditative existence. Would you say that's typical among this class of uh, 18 travel writers? Um, I'm not sure if it's typical. I think with Pico, what he said was he really he valued the stillness and the quiet of his meditation to kind of counteract the incessant travel and busyness. And I think most of these writers who travel do really need to come home to quiet, grounded existence, and that's why their homes have become so important to them. Maybe that's why when I go out to lunch, when I'm in my work mode here and back at home, I go to the same restaurant 
and I order the same thing. My nickname is uh, Mr. Tostada when I go into the Mexican <laughs> restaurant, and I don't even have to look at, uh, they just bring me a cranberry juice and a tostada. I just need that stability, that, that, that simpleness, because the rest of it is just a, a, a kind of a tornado of different restaurant meals and so on. How materialistic are these travel writers in general? Are they rich? Do they have great houses? Or are they, do they have more money than, than you would uh, imagine when you look at their trappings? I think only a couple. I think Francis Mays and Bill Bryson have done extremely well financially, but even Bryson said his only ambition was just to have enough to put his kids through college. The others, it's an, it's incredible. I mean, even writers as accomplished as Pico Iyer, when they write a new book, as good as it is, maybe they'll sell 10,000 copies. And is that you, right? You can't get rich doing that. If they hit a bestseller, you know, they'll do a lot better, of course. Okay, but they're not going to be millionaires because of this. No, and and... Almost everybody said if they were in it for the money, they would have chosen a different career because as, as hard as they work, it would be pretty easy for them to make yeah. substantial amounts of money in, in many other fields. So these people are comfortable, but none of them are uh, extravagantly wealthy because of the, uh, the, the great writing they've done that's made them quite respected and quite uh, famous. Yeah, I think they do it for the love of the writing. And, and you never know. I mean, Paul Theroux has, has done very well. He's very popular, as is Bryson, as is Mays. But... I'd say the the vast majority of people I I interviewed are just you know they're doing fine but they're not they're not they found their niche they're enjoying their work regardless of the pay probably exactly how about the politics what is uh, they've all traveled a lot they've all seen the world uh, what does it do to their politics well there were no uniform political opinions I would say overall people are somewhat progressive but they don't get into this polar left right blue red type of thing that we do here I think I think what they understand is that. You know, they've traveled the world, and they see what happens when the United States or the World Bank makes a decision that affects people on the ground. And they, I think they have a much more nuanced view of the world and, and how important it is to be global citizens today. And that's something that I think some of our leaders here in the U.S. don't quite get yet. So but, they're tuned into the gap between the rich and the poor and the impact America has on the rest of the world. Yeah, I think especially the impact America can have on the rest of the world Fair because we don't realize here how much, for example, if we, if we have a huge cotton subsidy for our cotton farmers here, how that puts people in the developing world out of business because they can't compete and sell their cotton here. They don't, sell, they don't tell, uh, teach global economics or the, the economics of uh, structural poverty in uh, business school, I guess. Um, what about their effect on their marriage? A lot of these people are engrossed in their work. Are most of them happily married? Are some never married? Have some had ruined marriages because of their work? Uh, it, as, as in any field, it kind of varies. There, there are several people who have been through a couple of difficult marriages, and uh, it can be very hard to sustain a relationship when you're traveling a lot. But All of them are away from home a lot, I suppose, when they do their work. Yeah, mostly. But some, like Jonathan Rabin, who also lives in Seattle, an Englishman, he, um, he's divorced, but he tells me he, he takes one big trip every couple of years. He'll go for two mm. or three months, four months maybe, every three or four years. All right. And he doesn't, he's not gone. I mean, I think there's a bit of a myth that, that some of these travel writers are gone all the time, and it's not quite like that. Right. Some are, but not, not all of them. Now, we know Samuel Coolidge was into opium, and he did a lot of writing when he was high in opium. These guys have traveled the world around. They've been in places where uh, mushrooms are part of the local cuisine, and uh, we're not talking chanterelles. Um, <laughs> any any uh, p- people work... Um, any of these kind of uh, you know aspects of foreign culture into their writing that you stumbled onto? Um, my experience is they work really hard without being under the influence, and then they go out and drink. But uh, so alcohol is their drug of choice. For for most writers I've met, they seem to really you know enjoy alcohol. Um, but I'm I'm not commenting specifically on any of the writers in the book. But I don't you know if they do other enhancements to their their creativity, they, they haven't disclosed that to me. And, you know, Paul Theroux wrote a, a very interesting fiction book uh, called Blinding Light, just came out. And in that book, the protagonist talks about taking this hallucinogenic mushroom, or not even a mushroom, but some other hallucinogen in South America, and then he goes blind. But by going blind and going into this state, uh, he just becomes a creative writer again, and he can't stop writing. And all the the writer's block he's had for 20 years disappears, and he gets hooked on this thing, and, and the book is about this sort of Faustian bargain of using this drug for creativity, and then it all unravels in the end. But, um, I, you know, I talked it through in person. I said, did you ever use drugs to 
stimulate your creativity. He said, no, no, no. He's 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 a fictional character, and in real life, he okay. just works hard and plays it straight. And then he so goes no, out and has no, uh, no autobiography sneaking in there. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, right. there's a very blurry line between I fact guess. and fiction. Are these guys workaholics, or are they sort of keep their lives in balance? Uh, well, it depends on the writer. I mean, Simon Winchester told me he can work seven days a week on a book when he's working on a book, and then he takes it easy for a while. But at his seven days a week, he says he starts work at 6, 10 a.m., and he works sometimes till 9 or 10 at night. He has this routine. He actually calculates how many words he needs to write each day and just does it and works till he's finished. And Wow. And uh, he's divorced, as far as I know. And um, what can I say? I mean, other writers like Bill Bryson, I said, well, what are you doing later tonight? He says, well, I'm going to do a little work, and then I'm going to watch the Red Sox game. So he seems to have a different approach that, right. you know, he'll still get the book done, maybe not as quickly, but uh, he is, he's happily married with four kids. And, uh, yeah, he seemed like a regular guy. Yeah. Now, you got to travel with some of the great writers on the planet, uh, some of the great travelers on the planet. You uh, traveled around Wales with Jan Morris? Yeah, we did. We we toured around her part of Wales for a couple of days, and uh, she showed me a couple of castles near her home, and, and her home itself, which was built in the 18th century, is this you know, stone edifice with thousands of books in her library, and it, it, was, it was just such a pleasure to meet these almost larger-than-life characters. Did she talk larger-than-life? I mean, what, were there just beautiful prose coming out of her mouth? Well, she speaks beautifully, but she's very down-to-earth, too, and, and a very quick wit. Uh, there's a very Welsh wit, which is, I can't quite capture it, but there's just the just the little barbs that go back and forth. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it. the gift of gab that I think exactly. that Celtic people have. And I, I went to a talk with her in a library in Seattle, and she was just sort of held court with all of us kind of at her feet, and it was just yeah. great to be in her presence. She's so charming. Very charming, and, and very um, grand dame kind of yeah, uh, old, exactly. old school and beautiful that way. What about Frances Mays? You went to uh, the... Uh, was at Cortona in Tuscany, right? And uh, actually uh, saw her house under the Tuscan sun. Yeah, well, we went up to her house is called Bramasole, which in Italian means yearning for the sun. Now I heard that's in the in the in the shade, and it was nobody would buy it. None of the local people would buy it, so the American came in and bought it. And that's uh, right. And it was actually in in on the wrong side of the hill. That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, it did stand idle for years and years, and finally, Francis and her husband Ed bought this home and. Then all the locals were thinking, damn, you know, I should have bought that house. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's done extremely well writing about it, and now the tour buses come by and look at it. And um, But it gets some sun. When, when we were there, there, if you're there at the right time of the day, you can catch a little sun there. Did, did these people have a, generally have a personal philosophy that shaped their... Uh, their uh, was the philosophy shaped by their travel, or did their philosophy shape their travel? Do you know what I mean? Well, I think... You know, they're such different people, but they're just all driven by curiosity. They're fascinated by the world. They want to meet people. They want to just to really explore and understand what what makes us different. You know, what what do people in Japan do for an evening, you know, free? And, and what do people in China do? And what do people in India do? And it's just, you know, this relentless curiosity about the world. Somebody had a great quote. I forget who it was, but they said, um, one of the good things about being a traveler is you see every circumstance as a possibility. That's true. And Pico Iyer talked about that, too, when his family's home burned down in, in Santa Barbara, California. And he just said, well... There he was with nothing. Yeah. All he had was a toothbrush, and he still realized he was better off than half the world because he had a place to stay and food to eat. And... Uh, and he, he saw it as, as a liberation. He called his agent and he said, all the notes for my manuscript have burned. And the editor said, well, now just write what you feel. Now you're not, you're not hostage to your notes anymore. Isn't that something? Now, I'm talking with uh, Michael Shapiro, and he wrote a great book called A Sense of Place, just a delightful collection of um, interviews, essays on 18 top travel writers. And, and you met with Arthur Fromer. Uh, Arthur Fromer is sort of the, the granddad of all of this uh, guidebook writing and uh, sort of the, the inspiration of a lot of us who want to write guidebooks to help people travel smartly and, of course, on $5 a day. Well, that's long gone. How's Arthur Fromer doing? Well, Arthur's doing great. He's in his mid-70s now, still as active and energetic as ever, probably has twice the energy as most men half his age, and continues to travel, continues to write. Uh, and he's just He's so gracious. He's he gives he's, talks to a tiny group. He'll talk to a, a people in a in a little bookstore with thirty people there. Oh sure, sure. And when I was in New York, uh, we did an event together, and he couldn't have been nicer. He was happy to do an event just for my book, and 
just as you were kind to to join me when I was up in Seattle. And um, yeah, Arthur is amazing. He started this magazine, Budget Travel, when he was about 70, and that did very well. And and now he's moving on to other projects. And I just I have so much respect for him because Arthur is always viewed travel from the consumer's perspective. He's kind of the, the people's traveler and wanted to find affordable places so just about everybody could afford to travel and not just travel for the elite. And I think that's what you do, too. I think you make you make travel accessible for people who, who maybe have enough money, but they might be a little intimidated about going somewhere. And they get one of your Europe books, and they say, oh, I yeah. can afford this, and I can do this, and I can go here, and this is where I can you know, stay and eat, and, and you just make it possible for people who think, well, maybe it would be too intimidating otherwise. So uh, I like to think I'm the next uh, uh, sort of a, a kin of Arthur Frommer, the next generation yeah, of Frommer. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of uh, big names in the guidebook writing uh, game anymore. There used to be, uh, you know, big names, household names, uh, Birnbaum, right. Fielding, Fodor, Frommer. And uh, it seems like there's a conspiracy among publishers to keep writers down and not let anybody uh, develop a big name. What's your take on that? Well, no question about it. I think travel guidebook writing has become more streamlined and more corporate. I think you and Arthur are pretty much the two big names that are left. And if you pick up some of the other guidebooks, they can be very well done, but they're they're lacking a little bit sometimes in personality. You don't you don't really know who writes a Lonely Planet book. It can be a good book, but it's uh, probably because a different person's going to update it next year. Very possibly, yeah. 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 Now what? You know, Arthur Fromer and I are guidebook writers, and I think we're more technicians, where the travel writers, the other 16 on the list, are more artists. Wouldn't you say that? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I made a real point to my publisher that I wanted both you and Arthur in the book, and initially they were a little hesitant because they said, well, this is this is a book of literary writers. And I said, well, you know, if you look at some of Arthur's book or, books or some of Rick's books, they they have literary writing in them, and they've both been very influential in terms of when people think of travel in the U.S., they think about Arthur and Rick. And I, I, I've i had several readers at many different bookstores say to me, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the Arthur Fromer chapter, or I love the Rick Steves chapter. And, hmm. and I think it's because you're storytellers, and I think ultimately that's what it gets down to is people love stories, and whether they're told from a high literary point of view or you know, just a more casual, here's where to go, here's what to do, and here's what I thought about it, and here's what happened to me. And so I think... Um, well, so we're story writers then, uh, Michael, but in a sense, I think the literary guys, the storytellers, are actually guidebook writers too. Uh, whereas Arthur Frommer and I are listing hotels and restaurants, these other guys, they're guidebooks in disguise because they're giving you an insight into the cultures. Yeah, and I think that's important that they're... I mean, what... When I wrote my postcards book, it's the only thing I've ever done that I consider literary. My postcards from Europe book, it was, uh, it doesn't sell well because it's stuck over there next to Paul Thoreau, and who's going to choose me over him in the literary section? But when I think about it, it's a guidebook in disguise because it gives people a little walk through a village with my favorite person in that village, and that's not going to find its way into a guidebook. That's travel literature. But we can see these great books as, as a sort of preparation to have our own um, intimate experience in those various cultures. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when I prepare for a trip, I'll get a guidebook, but I'll, <clears throat> I'll also get two or three literary books as well because I want to know what other people have experienced, and, and I want to hear stories. And sometimes you pick up a guidebook, and it has all these great ideas for things to do, but to get more of the texture of the place or to understand maybe more about the people and and the culture, then you can get a different perspective from a literary work. Michael, you spent a couple years uh, in this project, I would imagine, and uh, you're a travel writer yourself. You've got a lot of projects going on. Did you actually learn anything of practical value for your travel writing by talking to all of these other travel writers? Oh, sure. I mean, several things. I think, well, first of all, I think almost by osmosis, just being in the presence of these writers and transcribing their words and thinking about you know, how they approach a place was very instructive. And then I specifically asked people like Tim Cahill, how do you structure a story? And and how do you go from going on a trip to coming up with a travel story? And of course, you don't, you don't go on a trip and say, I took the plane here, and then I went there, and blah, blah, blah. What you do is you think about what, what are the most interesting aspects. And, and, and you have to almost let that filter filter out before you try to write and don't think, here's just one, one idea from Tim Cahill, don't think about doing a story chronologically. Start out with the most fascinating anecdote 
and then maybe work your way back in time or move forward in time and then come back and, and weave it all together. You don't have to be bound by time or any other limitations. As long as you stick to the truth, you can weave the story any way you want. And so that was just one. I mean, Peter Matheson had some great ideas about, you know, getting to the soul of the story and, and, and almost viewing travel for him as this meditative experience because he, he traveled uh, less than a year after his wife died, and this whole experience was a sort of way to feel that grief and then you know, move beyond his grief into a new phase of his life. Having done this project, Michael, do, are there any uh, travel writers who are long dead that you kind of wish, with all the skills you've had now from your interviewing, you could sit down and talk with? Yeah, there are a couple. I, I think uh, Norman Lewis, who was actually alive when I started the project, he's, he's a British writer that started writing travel in the 30s, died in his 90s. Uh, he was a hero of mine because he would go to places and see exploitation and say, look, this is not okay. You know, just as you talk about the cruise ship passengers tossing pennies to watch kids dive off the rocks and, and, and retrieve the coins, Norman Lewis or other, other, other types of exploitation and just said, this outrages me. And I think he was one of the first to really do that. Hmm. And Bruce Chatwin is another one. He wrote about traveling in, in Australia and traveling in Patagonia, uh, a gay uh, British writer who died uh, from AIDS, I believe, in the 80s, but wrote beautiful, beautiful passages hmm. about his travels. And, you know, there are so many. Uh, travel writing, I think, goes all the way back to Homer and the Odyssey. And it's carrying on, and you've written, uh, you've interviewed 18 people. You know, I think you've contributed to um, a historic understanding of uh, people who've made a difference in our generation and for future generations also of appreciating the value of travel. I've been talking with Michael Shapiro, beautiful book, A Sense of Place, and uh, thank you very much for joining us, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on, Rick. It's been a pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in this series and a link to send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.